0: We're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for a junior church at this time. Uh, you're headed out the back door today. and I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26. Philippians one, eighteen through 26, just part of a two-part series on the topic of Christian courage. And joy. How do we kill doubt and fear and cultivate in our hearts the optimism that Paul lived his life with? It is impossible to read the account of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 and not come away saying he was a passionate optimist in relationship to his life. He had a tremendously powerful, positive outlook on his experience. And yet when we look at his circumstances, we wonder where is he getting this optimism? How is it that Paul was so full of optimism? This morning I think we can make the observation that many of us think that life must be somewhat perfect for us to be happy. We tend to be very circumstantial in regards to our happiness. A tiff with our mate or a struggle with our children can throw us down the stairs very quickly. Uh, This past week, I had uh, some issues with my computer. Two serious encounters with trouble. And I want to tell you something. It it, it amazes me that a failure on the part of my email can cause me such anxiety. If you try to send me an email between Thursday and Friday, I didn't get it. Uh, I have a number of things coming down, people that I'm trying to keep in contact with, things that we're trying to get organized and get together, and all of a sudden, down goes my email. And guess what went down with it? My attitude okay we tend to think that circumstances need to be good in order for us to be happy and joyful and courageous in our walk with god paul knew the secret of contentment he knew the secret of joy and happiness. He has spent four years in prison when it comes to the writing of this letter. Two years in a town called Caesarea on charges that are trumped up against him. After two years, he's put on a ship. That ship wrecks. He's stranded on an island for the winter. There he is bitten by a snake, gets to Rome for another two years in prison, waiting trial ultimately to be executed. As he writes this incredibly optimistic letter that is full of joy and cause for rejoicing, we need to be reminded that he has lost his privacy, his freedom, he has little time with friends, his circumstances and outlook are bleak. And yet Paul is a man who is filled with joy and optimism. Look at the beginning of verse 27. He says, whatever happens. Okay? What is he saying? He's saying no matter what circumstances you face, make sure you keep your eye on the goal. Maintain courage and joy in your Christian experience. But there's a question that has to come up in our minds, and that is how do you maintain that kind of joy? Paul's specific circumstances are alluded to in verse 14. Notice what it says, or verse 13. He says, I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14, because of my chains. So his circumstances are he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier in confinement with many losses. And yet Paul is infectiously optimistic. And the question I want to ask this morning is why? Why was Paul so positive in his outlook when his immediate circumstance, everything he could see around him, pointed towards negative circumstances? Last week we looked at this truth. Paul had a different perspective on struggle and difficulty verse 12 i think captures this different perspective he says now i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel okay well what could make an apostle of christ more happy than knowing that his circumstances are promoting the news for which he is willing to die But see, the difference in perspective is this. Paul looks at his imprisonment as a means by which the gospel of Christ is going forward. The cause that he loves and desires to promote and encourage isn't hindered by his imprisonment. The circumstances that he's facing are indeed negative circumstances, but his perspective is this. God has a purpose behind every one of my problems. So Paul's got problems. He's got difficulties in his life. But his perspective that is giving him courage and joy is to realize that God is sovereign over all of those circumstances. God is not surprised by what's happening in Paul's life. In fact, I think Paul would tell you this. God is in control of what is happening in my life. So last week, we looked at that idea that Paul could see the purpose of God behind his problems. Everything that was happening to him was serving to advance the gospel and embolden his brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, I want to look at three more reasons why Paul was optimistic, joyful, and bold in circumstances that were produced for us, for most of us, I think, a spirit of discouragement. Let's look at verse Second half of verse 18. If you have the New International Version, you're going to notice that verse 18 is split in half to indicate the end of one paragraph and the beginning of another. And it's probably an appropriate logical break in this. Uh, so second half of verse 18, he says this. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Okay, so he's rejoicing in the circumstances of imprisonment. And now he says, and I am going to continue to rejoice. And then he uses the word for... So he's going to show that there's a logical connection between his reason and the rejoicing that he has. I'm rejoicing, and here's why. So the beginning of verse 19 starts with the word for, and let's read along there. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help that is given by the Spirit of Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I want to just poke away at this word, just for one second. The word deliverance. Some translations have the word salvation. Here's the question. Is Paul focused on a temporal deliverance from prison, or is he focused on his ultimate deliverance through the cross of Christ? Okay, that's the question and the tension that arises in this text. Is the deliverance or salvation that Paul hopes for, deliverance from temporary circumstances, or is it deliverance ultimately through the crosswork of the Savior that we have sung about so beautifully this morning? I would argue that the salvation that is firing Paul's soul and encouraging his heart is not the hope of a change of circumstances on planet Earth. I would argue it is his ultimate hope that no matter what happens, his eternity is secure because of the work of Christ. If you said, Tim, why would you argue that point? I would do it from verse 20. From verse 27, he says, I eagerly expect and, and hope that I will in no way be put to shame, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, so now and in the future, Christ will be exalted in my body by life or death. Okay, and we get down to verse 27. He says, whatever happens, meaning no matter what the outcome of this imprisonment circumstance is, Paul's going to be joyful. And he, he talks about Christ being exalted in his life, whether it is by life or death. So you start to get the indication from those qualifiers that Paul's hope is not in a temporal deliverance from prison. It is in an ultimate deliverance from the consequences of his sin and rebellion against God. So in the background of this is this hope of salvation. Why was he confident? Why was he so optimistic? first thing I think is this. Paul was confident in Christ's power to keep him. Okay, Paul was confident in Christ's power to keep him in a context that would drive out joy for most of us. What is, the, what is the power that sustained Paul in prison for four years? That's the question that you have to ask here. How is it that after four years of incarceration that Paul still has a smile on his face that won't go away? How is that? Okay, and I think this text, verse 19, indicates two reasons and the text also indicates that there's connection between these two resources of power that paul's experience he says i know that through your prayers and the help given by the spirit of christ okay so paul is confident in Christ's power to keep him that power is coming from two sources and those two sources are intimately related and connected to each other through your prayer. And the power or help of the Spirit. Paul's dependent upon two things, and it's through these means that the power of Christ is coming to him. He is dependent on their intercessory prayer and the fullness of the Spirit that results from their prayer support for him. It's a fascinating connection, isn't it? Paul says, I'm confident. Because of your prayers. And when you pray. The spirit of God is coming and Moving into my life. In a unique way. With a special sense of power. Here's a question for you. Do you pray. For the spirit of God. To be poured out. In the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, we pray for very specific things. Don't we? But do we pray. That the spirit of God. Would be poured out in unique measure. On our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now. Some things pop into our minds. Okay, one is this: Every Christian, according to Romans eight nine, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Romans eight nine says, "If someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him." The Spirit's presence is a mark, an indication of belonging to God. It is a mark of salvation. Yet we are called to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians five eighteen, right? Be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Acts four and verse eight. The Bible says that Peter, who has already been baptized in the Spirit in Acts 2, is now filled with the Spirit, freshly and continuously. In Acts 4 and verse 31, all the believers are filled with the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 7 and verse 55, Stephen, as he is proclaiming the good news of Christ, is filled with the Spirit of God. Acts 13 and verse 52, the Apostle Paul is speaking in defense of the gospel, and he is filled the presence of the Spirit of God. Okay, so we we have the indwelling presence of the Spirit in our God of God in our hearts by virtue of salvation. But as we pray for one another, Paul is saying, by your prayers and the help given by the Spirit. And the word that he uses in the original language that ties together your prayers and the help given showed that there is a significant substantive relationship between the fresh filling of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints on behalf of Paul. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. Paul has joy and confidence because he is sustained by the power of Christ. And he has full confidence in the power of Christ to keep him. The Holy Spirit, friends, is freely given to us to assure success in the purposes of God. He comes to make our success in Christ certain. He comes to bring joy into our life in spite of the circumstances. The result of this confidence that Paul has by the Spirit is then, in a sense, explained in verse 20. He says, as a result, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be put to shame. Okay, as a result of your prayers and the Spirit of God in filling me and teaching me about the truth of Christ, Paul says, I eagerly hope and expect that I will in no way be put to shame. Now, a verse comes to mind from the Old Testament. Psalm 28, verses 1 to 3. Just listen to what this says. This, this I think, is exactly where Paul is quoting from. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Isn't that powerful? The Spirit's coming, assuring of the presence of Christ, causing Paul to trust in Christ because they're praying. And as they're praying, the Spirit's coming. And as the Spirit comes, Paul in verse 20 can say, I eagerly expect. And the idea of eager expectation here is, it's the picture of a runner at the end of a race who has fixed his eyes on the finish line and nothing can distract him from the prize. That's the picture of Paul's painting. He's saying, I am stretching out for the prize and nothing in my life is going to distract me from the purpose for which Jesus Christ has called me. And what is he saying? I am absolutely confident that because my hope is in Christ, I will not be disappointed. That's the idea. It is a hope that, dis- that ignores all distractions and troubles. And those that put their hope in him will never be put to shame. Is it any wonder then that when you get to chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul says this. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I live in the power of God, Paul is saying, nothing can devastate me. Isn't that powerful? He is confident and filled with joy in negative circumstances because he knows about the power of Christ to keep him. And that power comes as a result of the prayers of the saints by the infilling, indwelling, fresh coming, and fullness of the Spirit of God. Flip back with me, if you would, one page to Ephesians 6 and verse 19. I want you to see the connection between prayer and fearless proclamation of the gospel because this is what Paul's all about. He says, pray for me, verse 19 of Ephesians 6. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me. From where? From the indwelling of the Spirit. So what is he saying? Pray for me that the Spirit of God will come upon me with a fresh filling so that I may courageously proclaim the gospel of Christ so that words will be given, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray that I would be so conscious of the presence of Christ in my life by the Spirit of Christ that I would be able to boldly and courageously stand in his power. You look at Paul, and how does he have this persistent happiness, the smile that you just can't wipe off his face? It's because he's confident in the power of Christ to sustain him in any and all circumstances. Folks, here, here's a lesson that emerged out of this first thought. We need each other's prayers. We do. And when we pray for each other, God's promises us that he will give fresh infillings and power from his spirit to sustain us and to make us successful in the cause of Christ. Paul was confident. Not in his own ability. Not because he was stoic and strong. Paul was confident because of the power of Christ that was resting upon him. He was confident in Christ's power to keep him. therefore, he could do all things that God had called him to do. Number two begins at the second half of verse 20. Notice what Paul says. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be be put to shame, but will have sufficient courage so that now... As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For, and this is the verse that all of us are familiar with. Why is Paul confident? Why does he have sufficient courage? Why is Christ going to be exalted in his his body, whether by life or by death? For, to me, to live is Christ. And if to live is Christ, what is Paul saying? Then to die is gain. If living is to exalt Christ, then dying is to be with Christ. And Paul saying, that is far better. Why was Paul optimistic? I think the second reason that emerges here is this. He is committed to a clear priority. He knows why he is alive. He has a clear priority priority in his life that adjusts all other perspectives that causes him to be able to see his struggle in light of the bigger picture and the larger priority of his life, which is to make Jesus Christ known. I want to summarize this statement, this thought, his clear priority by saying this. Paul's clear priority, I believe, was the exaltation of Christ in all things. Okay, the exaltation of Christ in all things. That was Paul's priority whether by life or death. What is he saying? He says, whether my life is going tremendously well and great or whether I am about to have my head cut off, which will soon happen in Paul's life because of Christ. He says, I have a clear priority, and that is that I want Christ to be exalted in my body, whether it is by life or by death. So Paul's priority, the exaltation of Christ in all things by the enjoyment of Christ above all things. Okay, the exaltation of Christ in all things by the enjoyment of Christ above all things. Do you see the perspective that Paul has for me to live as Christ, to exalt him? Because I can't wait to be him, be with him. If to live as Christ, then Paul's saying, to die then is gain. It's a powerful statement. The purpose, the priority of his life is to exalt Christ in all things by enjoying him above all things all things the parable that comes to my mind is the parable of the man who is walking through a field and he he is tapping around on the ground perhaps with his walking cane and he taps on a hollow box he opens the box and he finds in it a tremendous prize a pearl of great price jesus says this he says what will that man do He says that man will go and sell everything, sacrifice everything he has so that he may gain that prize. You see, folks, when we know that Jesus is the greatest prize, when we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain, guess what happens? We are willing to make complete, massive adjustments in our life so that we can have him as the priority, the central enjoyment of our lives. And when we enjoy enjoy him above all things, he is exalted and the priority of the Christian life is fulfilled now paul makes some statements in verses 21 and 22 that i think are are amazing one is he has a remarkable indifference to his physical circumstance notice what he says verse 21 he says for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i am to go on living in the body this will mean fruitful service and labor for me yet what shall i choose i don't know isn't that an amazing... Indi- he's indifferent. He says, if, if I stay here and live, that'll exalt Christ. But if I die and go to be with him, that'll be better. And he, he's talking about huge, massive issues that consume our thinking. Life and death. And what is his attitude towards it? He has a remarkable indifference. Why? Because the priority of his life is to exalt Christ by enjoying Christ. So he's not so tied to the temporal realm that he can't think about the joy that will be his when he's in the presence of Christ. And he, that results in what? A remarkable indifference towards the temporal realm. And indifference, I don't mean a carelessness. I mean he, he is genuinely caught between a rock and a hard place. To stay and to be with people and enjoy relationships and serve others. That's a deep passion for Paul and to exalt Christ by doing that and proclaiming the gospel. That's something he loves. But he also says to depart is to be with Christ. And he says, quite frankly, I am. I'm caught. The the word that he uses when he says. uh, This the dilemma, 22, choosing to live, he says, is more difficult than the choice to die. And that to me is a, a fascinating place where Paul comes to. What is he saying? He's saying, in my current circumstances, it would be easier for me to choose to die and be with Christ than it would be to choose to live. Why? Because living meant what for Paul. It meant a lot of suffering. It meant a lot of difficulty. It meant staying in a realm that has fallen that leads to disappointment. Folks, don't all of us go through that at times? Aren't there times when the circumstances of your life cause you to say, you know what, I would like to be in heaven now? You ever hit that point? I mean, you, you mean it, but you don't mean it. The struggles and pressures of life, the real issues that trouble us, sometimes cause us to say, you know what? Being with Christ does not sound bad. And it's not, as one writer said, it's not that Paul is suicidal in his thinking here. It's not like that. It's not that life is so horrible. I'd rather go there. He is genuinely caught the idea is that he's been, he's walking on a on a on a cliff edge here is a rock wall and here is a precipice and he says i'm kind of stuck in this place and later he says he says i really don't know which choice to make because the priority of his life was to exalt christ in all things by enjoying christ above all things folks can we be honest Can we be honest that sometimes our priorities get out of line? Sometimes we get caught up in the pursuit of possessions. Get all you can. Get what you can. Sometimes we get caught up in the pursuit of pleasure. Do what feels good. What gives pleasure. What relieves boredom. But Monday morning comes and the pleasure that we pursue in that realm doesn't last. Sometimes we seek power, prestige, and popularity. As one writer has said, we drive and dress to impress. For many teens, a willingness to do anything to be accepted by the peer group that we're around, even if it means the sacrifice of Christian principles, what is Paul saying? Paul saying, "For me to live is Christ, the enjoyment of Christ above all things, so that Christ is exalted in all things it's the joy of the christian life that's why paul and Son, or or why, why uh David, in Psalm 16, 11, he says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures that last forever. Folks, that's why Paul is struggling. He knows that the pleasures of life, the circumstances of life, the relationships of life are temporary. But the joy that we will have in the presence of Christ is lasting and eternal. And so Paul is filled with this struggle, this Dilemma. This remarkable indifference. Because he is so committed to the exaltation of Christ all things. By the enjoyment of him above all things. As I was going through this and thinking of an illustration that captures this idea of. Exalting above all things by enjoying above all things. I, I thought of what happens on a wedding day. Maybe even what happens in an engagement. An engagement is when an, one individual makes a commitment to another individual to say, you know what, I, I want you to know that I'm committed to spending the rest of my life with you. I've looked around, shopped around. I've considered the options. And I'm choosing you. And the question is this. Will you spend the rest of your life with me? And in the wedding vows, what do we say? Forsaking all others which is a means of what it's a means of exalting that person it's saying i am convinced that no one else in life can make me happier than you and by making a commitment of solidarity and faithfulness to you i am saying to you i want to exalt you and enjoy you above all other commitments that's what that's what's so beautiful about the commitment of marriage it's what's so devastating when it's broken It's what's so beautiful about the enjoyment of Christ. In all things, exalted. Above all things, enjoyed. But see, that's the direction that Paul's moving in. Is that our passion? Are we confident in his power to keep us? Are we committed to the clear priority of exalting Christ in all things by enjoying him more than anything else in life? Paul is old and tired. They've taken everything away from him. But the thing that they can't take away from Paul is his hope. And you know what his hope is? That in everything, Christ will be exalted. Here's what he's saying. You can kill me. But if you kill me, people will know who I died for. What do you do with a person like that? What do you do with someone whose cause will be advanced, whether you keep them alive in prison or you kill them? And they look at you and say, you know what, if you kill me, that's fine. And Paul's made it clear, I would rather be with Christ. But there's something that holds him here that has to do with his joy and his optimism. There is a a purpose that keeps Paul willing to stay here while he'd rather be there. I want you to notice this last thought. Verse 24. Paul says, now, let's throw in verse 23. He says, I am torn between the two. I desire to, put, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now, I want you to notice the connection here. Verse 22, he says, if I am to go on living in the body. And then when you come to verse 25, he says, convinced of this, or I'm sorry, the end of verse 24, he says, it is necessary for you that I remain in the body. So what does Paul understand? He understands that his physical body is the theater in which the exaltation of Christ is taking place. His physical presence is making a difference in the lives of others. And that difference in the lives of others becomes the third thought that I want to give you this morning. And that is, Paul was optimistic because he had a purpose to live for. Okay, he had a power that sustain him, the presence of Christ. He was committed to a clear priority, the exaltation of Christ. But Paul had a purpose. And that purpose was not eliminated by his being in prison. No, instead, it is in many ways encouraged. He had a purpose to live for, the progress of others. Verse 25. Convinced of this, that it is more necessary that I remain in the body, that I defer my personal desires to be with Christ, which would be far better than being in prison. Paul says, I'm willing to put that aside for the time being. And look, we don't know if God said to Paul, hey, Paul, it's your call. It's a fascinating tension in this text, isn't it? Did God give Paul an auto? But hey, Paul, if you want to come home and be here, you can. You've done enough. I think it's probably somewhat of a a hypothetical discussion that's going on in the mind of Paul, being there, being here. I I would love to be there more, but being here is more necessary. And He's kind of, in, in a sense, sounding out what is God's purpose and plan in this immediate circumstance. His conclusion is clear. His conclusion is the purpose for which he lives. I know I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's preference is clear. To be with God. He defers his preference so that he can fulfill his God-given purpose. And that purpose in life is what gives Paul some of the greatest joy. The purpose is their progress and their joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Fascinating statement it is more necessary. Verse 24, your progress and joy is dictating my desire. I want to stay here even though I'd rather be there because I am concerned about your growth. And then verse 25, convinced of this, certain of this, I'm going to remain and be at your side. I want you to notice how he says this in verse 25. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue. Now, Both words are very closely related in the Greek language. One literally means to remain. And the second word, which is very similar, means to remain so as to be at your disposal. Okay, so I'm going to remain and it is becomes emphatic. I'm going to remain, but remain in such a way that I am at your disposal. I am here for your encouragement and benefit. Folks, do you look at your life in that way? Do you ever ask yourself the question, why does God have me here? Why does God have me in the sphere of relationships that I'm in, in the church family that I'm in? He's allowed me to remain, but to remain with the purpose. This is what encourages Paul and makes him optimistic. God has a plan, a purpose for Paul's life. Their progress and their joy in the faith. Notice, the plan is not Paul's personal happiness, but there is a happiness That flows out of fulfilling his purpose. Paul's saying this, what makes me happy is knowing that your life is being encouraged by God using my circumstances to help to change you and to bring you joy in your life. My experience, verse 26, he says, of Christ's sustaining power by the Spirit will be a cause of hope and joy for you. Folks, what is the secret of joy? What is the secret of joy? And most of you are familiar with this acrostic. Joy is Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. Joy is found not in self-centered living. The happy people I know in life are not people that are self-centered. They're people that are other-oriented, that desire to exalt Jesus Christ and to pour their lives into others. And the result is that there is a joy that comes as a byproduct of that kind of a pursuit. If you look just real quickly at verses 27 and 28, you just find one other key that kind of emerges in this this text. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm, and then this statement, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those that oppose you. You know, Paul had a concept of the church. Paul had a concept of the Christian life. And that concept of the Christian life involved relationships. He says, whether I come or and far away i will know that you are standing firm together contending and the picture is you are contending as one man you are a band of brothers you are intimately and deeply and vitally related to each other that was paul's purpose that others would experience progress and joy in their faith and that hope gave him great joy can i ask you this question this morning are you frustrated today? Do you lack hope of lasting change? Are you seeking victory over persistent struggles? Are you failing to see the light? Are you failing to see hope? Are you failing in terms of optimism in relationship to the purposes of God in your life? If you are, I want you to look at Philippians 1 and verse 6. Paul says this. Being confident of this that is sheer optimism that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ paul's confidence was not in his commitment it was not in a decision that he had made to be faithful to christ and to serve christ it's not where his confidence came from he made those commitments but his confidence to keep those commitments was rooted in the power of christ it was rooted in a clear priority and a clear purpose to live for and in those purposes christ was helping him perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know jesus christ as your lord and savior i want you to know that there is the possibility of hope you may look at your life and say hey for me to get this ship turned around is going to require massive changes that I am not capable of. I need a perfection that I can't achieve on my own. I need to rest in what someone else has done for me through his cross work on Calvary. My, my friends, this morning for you, there is good news. There is goodness. If you are aware of your overwhelming sin, the good news for you is that there is hope that will produce optimism, Encourage and, and joy in your life, and that hope is found in Philippians three and if you would just turn there with me real quickly, Philippians three and verse nine, what gave Paul absolute confidence? it was this: it was that I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, that is through what I do, but that which comes through faith. In Christ. A righteousness. That comes from God. And is by faith. Folks when we see our sinfulness. It will be the cause of pure pessimism. And the cross. The antidote. Will be the cause. Of pure optimism. Paul knew the glory of the cross of Christ. And it made him profoundly optimistic in spite of the fact that he could say in, first, or in 2 Timothy 1, he could say, I am the chiefest of sinners, yet I am optimistic about my future. Why? Because a Savior died to pay the price for my sin. And Paul says, I am confident that he will bring to completion what he has begun in my life until the day that he returns. So if you're here this morning as a Christian, well, you have reason for hope because of the power of Christ in you. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, I don't know Christ personally. I don't have optimism when I think about my death and going on into eternity. I don't know that I know Christ. This morning, the good news for you is that there is hope because there is a Savior who has borne the price of your sin. All of it. And he wants to give you his shed blood to cleanse you from your sin. He wants to cover you with your righteousness and to give you confidence that one day you will spend eternity with him in heaven forever. Because of his shed blood. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?